I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Lies are at the heart of nearly every problem in our culture, society at large, and our own souls. From the outset of the Bible story, the snake arrives to lead humanity astray, not with its fangs or with a nuclear bomb, but with a lie. If the devil's primary weapon is to wield deceit with murderous intent, how can disciples of Jesus fortify themselves with the truth? So uh, we're, we're in a series and a new practice uh, right now called uh, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil, which is as intense as it sounds, believe it or not. And I do have some recommended reading for you guys if you're into that sort of thing, and you, you should be for your brains. Um, the first is this book uh, that I just got into this week, actually. It's called The Truth About Lies and the Lies About Truth by a gentleman named David Tackle. I had no idea that this book existed until a friend of mine um, at Bridgetown, who, whom I write the practices with, was saying this is, he called it an off-the-beaten-path type of book, uh, meaning uh, it looks kind of weird and has a butterfly on the front, but super, super good content, The Truth About Lies and the Lies About Truth by David Tackle. Um, there's also this book, uh, The Unseen Realm by Michael S. Heiser, and I think that I put on the slide, yes, there, this is the kind of big, thick, academic version. If you're into that sort of thing, he has a shorter reader version called Supernatural, I didn't name these things, um, but they're great. The, this is all about recovering a supernatural worldview of the Bible, about the spiritual realm, spiritual warfare, and how that works in a, in a biblical motif and in the here and now. Excellent stuff, uh, The Unseen Realm or Supernatural by Heiser. This entire series was actually prompted by a specific chapter um, and a thread line throughout this book by Dallas Willard called The Renovation of the Heart. Um, if you've been around for more than a second, you know we're big Dallas Willard fans, and our uh, whole premise of the practices came out of a very uh, Dallas Willard-like school of thought. Um, and then finally, there's these two, well, not finally, but next to last, there's these two companion piece volumes, um, both very dense and very thick. Um, God at War is the first by um, Gregory A. Boyd, and then Satan and the Problem of Evil is the kind of sister volume. It is kind of supposed to be one book, that looks like that, but it's divided into two sections. And if you've ever had to read one of these uh, academic type books, you know that like 50% of it is footnotes. So you're doing just fine. Don't be scared. Um, and uh, honestly, it is, it, it's a super dense subject matter. But I think, Cam, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not beyond your pay grade if you don't usually read theology. It's super understandable and down to earth, even though it's a lofty concept. Massively helpful in understanding the whole concept of uh, spiritual warfare, especially in connection to the problem of evil, sin and suffering, death and that type of thing, which we'll also get into more in the series. And then finally, I know a, a lot of you guys, or uh, maybe some of you guys have probably already read The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I don't have my copy here, but um, it's a fantasy fiction, um, but it's actually based on profound theological insight. Um, and the premise of the novel is a short little novel where, in which a, a, a mentor demon is writing letters to an apprentice demon on ways to um, fool and deceive human beings. Um, so packaged into that super creative concept is a ton of dense, profound theological insight into the way that the enemy works. And obviously, you know, C.S. Lewis is the kind of giant figure he is for a reason. So all that Recommended reading for the fall if you want to get more into um, the whole premise of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Good? You guys all right? All right. Now, for tonight, the world, and in particular, 
our culture in the Western world, in America, and our socio-political climate does not share a common baseline of the truth. Um, outrage is in vogue right now, and in, in an outrage culture, nuance and ambiguity get choked and gasp in the strangling grip of emotional absolutes all the time. Terms like fake news and alternative facts are now ubiquitous. They get used all the time by both sides. Um, moments in time, crimes that are committed, words that get said, often ones that are said and committed before witnesses or recorded on camera or broadcast to millions via television or the internet are then later disputed after the fact. Everything from political claims or the behavior of powerful men or what transpired on a date between two parties either this week or three decades ago, ideas about gender and sexuality and race relations and art and science and church and state, all of it is writhing in this hostile screaming match. There is only one truth. Only one thing is true and one thing is untrue and few people can seem to agree on which is which and we make enemies and absolutes out of either side. And, and maybe some of you feel some kind of personal investment in some of those issues that I just listed a moment ago, which only serves to further prove that humans often disagree on what is and is not absolutely true. Wars are waged on the basis of untrue things. Deception can cost people their images or their careers or their lives in some cases. False teaching can cost people their souls. Entire cultures and generations and civilizations and societies are broken down and undone by the decimating power of lies. And the seemingly insurmountable power of the lie is in its ability to disguise itself as the truth or half of the truth, or simply an abstraction of the truth. And some can see through that mask, but they cannot convince others of the ruse, because still others see no disguise at all and become anchored, committed, resolute to believe that which is not true, even to their own destruction. And this has always been true of humanity, as true today as it has ever been. Lies are at the heart of nearly every problem in ourselves and in the world around us. And at the heart of this idea of a lie is, according to Jesus of Nazareth, a creature called the devil. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, that's the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Feel free to consult the table of contents or click on it if you have the this new digital version of the Bible they're using these days. Last week, like I said, we began a new practice, learning to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you weren't here, like Tab said, please go back and listen to the podcast. It's foundational for what's ahead, massively helpful in building out a paradigm for what we call spiritual warfare. warfare. Now, the recap for this evening, for our purposes, has to do with the complicated, and I would argue often flawed way, in which we tend to imagine what in theology is called spiritual warfare. See, some people dismiss the idea of the supernatural realm and entities in the supernatural realm um, as superstitious nonsense. We know better now that's an archaic belief left over from a bygone era. Still others, they don't necessarily articulate that kind of skepticism directly, meaning if pressed, they wouldn't say they don't believe in demons and the devil and that kind of thing, but they basically live as though they don't believe in those things. Now, on the other side of the spectrum are those who, like, chalk everything up from, like, a cough to a parking ticket to the devil himself, 
and they ignore the inherent complexity of our broken and often chaotic world. But many of us today who claim to follow Jesus don't dismiss the devil outright, and we don't blame him for a headache necessarily. We think we tend to think of the devil as someone who's like involved in something like a mass shooting, something overtly and powerfully evil, like a natural disaster, or maybe even those wild, rare incidents that we hear about from reputable sources like an exorcism or things that go bump in the night, something scary or weird that happens in a house. And I don't think that's entirely mistaken, per se, honestly. Sometimes those things can be true. But, and please listen, according to Jesus, the primary weapon of what the Bible calls the evil one, the Satan, the devil, is the weapon of deceit. The devil's go-to, his signature move, his, his signature style is to lie. And it's not just any lie. Last week, we actually described the devil's approach thusly. The devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. Let me say that one more time. The devil's go-to, his strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness. Not just a lie that has no emotional weight to us whatsoever. Something that panders to what's bent out of shape about who we are and things that have become normalized in a broken society because we're much easier to convince. See, we love to pick on people, including ourselves, for being duped by a lie. We tell funny stories about getting ripped off or, or whatever, but the strength of a lie is in its ability to fool you. <laughs> That's the whole point. We're led astray by lies for a number of, of complicated, in some cases, even understandable reasons. Someone tells you something that you desperately want to be true, and they say it with just enough conviction to bypass your filters, just enough evidence to bypass your filters, and, and plenty of emotional resonance to reel you in, and so you are deceived. Or someone tells you something that is hopelessly untrue, but they're on your team, meaning they're part of your political party or they're from your own theolog theological camp that you like, and so you feel as though you have no choice but to believe them. Uh, last year, there's this um, Christian parody site, kind of like The Onion, a Christian version of The Onion called The Babylon Bee, um, and they, it's a satire news website, and they ran this headline that read, uh, a uh, poll result is that majority of evangelicals would support Satan if he ran as Republican candidate. That's actually a f apparently a photo of Satan. And um, <laughs> it's like taken this year or whatever. In our, in our modern outrage culture, there's absolutely no room for nuance or complexity, meaning I, I don't say that to like ruffle feathers or anything like that because you could just as easily, and, and frankly I often do, run a number of similar gags at the expense of every single socio-political preference there is because there's no room for nuance or complexity as the left has kind of become the new fundamentalism where the idea is you submit to our vision for utopia or we will destroy you. So with topics in need of thorough nuance, an outraged mob mentality reduces a conversation around things like gender and sexuality and race and economics or whatever it might be to a picket sign or a hashtag or a protest chant. And the idea is you either submit or you are on the wrong side of history. And of course, the non-submitters see the protesters and their signs and their hashtags and immediately dismiss them and everything they have to say without a moment of thoughtful pause or consideration. And both sides 
both sides loathe the lonely person in the middle looking for some semblance of truth in a seemingly non-existent option C because we choose to believe things if they come in the right package. If it's part of our political party, part of our preference, part of our theological camp, we've just got to believe it. We have no choice to even consider something from the other side. Or someone tells you something that is almost entirely true, almost, but at the end of that 98% reality is a very powerful, very deadly 2% deceit, and you are led astray by the 2%. Or, on that note, someone comes to you with a powerful truth, but one that deceitfully omits important aspects of that truth. One side of a decidedly two-sided conversation. Meaning, it's the truth, sure, but it's not all of the truth. In just the right moment of despair, a charismatic figure comes shouting some kind of confident lie to you, and they're full of fury and vigor with steady conviction, and then we line up to receive that deceit in our trembling hands. In fact, uh, recently, (laughs) my wife, Abby, who's um, an advocate for those gross drinks that don't taste like anything, what, uh, LaCroix, and... um, She's, she's a big uh, an advocate, and a, a LaCroix apologist, if you will. And, um, and there was this headline that was getting, uh, maybe a bunch of you saw it, this headline that was getting passed around all week that was like, LaCroix discovered to destroy your soul. What, what was the headline? It was actually like something in it was toxic or something like that. There was some kind of toxic chemical in LaCroix. Mike, you read it, right? And, oh, you're just laughing at the whole thing. And then uh, and I, several people sent it to me. Send this to Abby. Open her eyes, you know. And, uh, and she got it from several different people. And then I was like, hey, did you read that thing? She was like, yeah, I read it. It really wasn't much to it. And it, it didn't end up saying what the headline suggested it might say, which I'm sure if you've ever been sent like a headline from your grandma or something, you know nothing's ever exactly what the headline actually sounds like. But the people that are sending it around, they didn't bother to open the link. They're just like, my God, LaCroix is destroying us. Abby, read this, you know. So we can be convinced of something if it comes in the right moment, in the right package. The point is that the fight against lies is not as simple as many of us would like it to be. Many of you uh, began the first practice in your communities this last week only to learn exactly that. Identifying lies that you believe can be exceedingly difficult. And this brings us to John chapter 8, the most in-depth teaching from Jesus of Nazareth on this creature called the devil. Now, last week we talked at length about this passage, and we read a ton of it, but let's revisit just the key two verses here to begin our work this evening. You guys still feeling all right? Sharp? Great, thank you. All right, let's look at John chapter 8, beginning with verse 44. This is Jesus in context talking to the respected religious leaders of his day. He says this to them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I, Jesus, tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, Um, This is, of course, plenty intense without further commentary, but Jesus is actually doing something wonderfully uh, sophisticated with his critique of the religious religious leaders. So to get there, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So turn to the left in your Bibles, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that far back to the beginning. If you're new to the Bible, that's the very first book. Easy stuff. Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. While you're doing that, let me give you a disclaimer disclaimer about what we're about to read. 
Um, and that disclaimer is that this story has a talking snake in it. Now, even for those unfamiliar with the Bible with, or with Christianity, uh, the story about the talking snake and imagery from that story is easily, they're easily among the most well-known stories from the entire library of the scriptures, which is a bit problematic, honestly, because for many, a story about a talking snake is simply too fanciful or too mythological of an account to handle, and so it, get used, it gets used to kind of make fun of the Bible and those who adhere to the teachings of the scriptures. Um, and then when you read the story, honestly, I, I don't say this with any amount of disrespect as a great lover of the scriptures, when you read the story, you can see why it's a bit problematic for certain people. But listen to me on this before we read it. It's so important for us to remember that this is ancient literature for which we actually have no modern equivalent in terms of style and genre. Um, it was written thousands of years ago in a, in a now dead language in a different part of the world, a different culture, a different context. And there are educated, thoughtful, committed disciples of Jesus who disagree on the exact nature of what's going on in this story. Some argue that it could be history, meaning there was an actual literal talking snake in the garden, and that's how it went down. What you see on the page is what you get. Others kind of read it as maybe a kind of ancient Near Eastern parable that explains spiritual evil in the world and how humanity fell into evil. Still others read it as a response to or an apologetic against ancient Babylonian mythologies that tell a really similar story uh, about evil, but with a radically different worldview. And listen, don't let the fact that there are different interpretations startle you. All of that, all of everything I just said, has to do with a genre of literature, meaning whichever one of those is right, I don't get bent out of shape about it. Either way, the story is communicating a powerful truth. So do me a favor, suspend cynicism for a moment. Don't get caught up in, is this history? Is this literal? Is it metaphorical? Is it apologetic? Either way, the story is true. Now, let's read from Genesis 3, beginning with the very first verse. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. By the way, this is the first mention that we get of this character, and it comes seemingly out of nowhere. That word crafty can also be translated as cunning or even deceitful. The serpent was more deceitful than any other creature, meaning already this thing is a charlatan. It is a con artist. It is a fraud. And the text goes on. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, pause for just a moment again. Many people in the world love to imagine this idea that humanity is constantly leveling up in general intelligence. We love to think that we're smarter than our parents were. They love to think that they were smarter than our grandparents were. But actually, research seems to indicate that humanity is no more intelligent than it ever has been, no more intelligent than even ancient peoples. We obviously know more about the universe and things in it, but we're, as a general rule, no more intelligent. And all that to say, even ancient peoples knew <laughs> that snakes don't talk, as a general rule anyway. So whatever the heck this thing is, and whatever the heck is going on in this story, this is no ordinary snake. It's not like Eve is like, I don't know, maybe one of them talks, la, 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 you know, she starts talking. The idea is that there's something really unique. This is one of a kind type of thing. And Eve at responds to it. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. 
Verse 4, right away from the serpent, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when this creature, the one whom Jesus later claims has been a murderer from the very beginning, when this snake comes to bring death and bring despair, it doesn't bear its fangs. After all, if it's a snake, it seems like that'd be the way to go about it. It doesn't strike. It doesn't bring venom or poison at all. It comes to Eve with an idea, and it's a deceptive idea, a lie. And it's a lie that panders to Eve's heart, her desire. Look at verse 6. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, if what God and the snake says are true, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. If you know the story, this is a unique development. This was not the case just a story ago. Verse 11, and he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So immediately relationships have become fractured. There's blame shifting. It's the woman's fault. It's your fault. You put her here. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing that you've done? The woman said, listen, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now pay attention. Both the Adam and Eve characters are disobedient in the story. That much is obvious. God gives them a specific command. They know what it is. They understand it, and they choose to disobey. But notice the way the author depicts that disobedience. He says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it, meaning these are good intentions. They're actually really reasonable desires. It's not like she's like, she could get out ahead or she could crush her husband or she could like somehow overpower God. It says, no, she saw that it looked good, looked like it tasted good. Wisdom seems like a good thing. So God, or the serpent, takes those good intentions and those really reasonable desires and uses them to deceive her. And look what happens, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Another way of translating and understanding that line could be that the idea is that there will now be an ongoing war between this snake and all the descendants of this woman. All human beings will be at war. Enmity will exist between the snake and human beings. And it goes on. And between your offspring and hers. He, meaning now we're talking about one particular descendant of Eve, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And Bible scholars actually argue that that last little bit is the very first foreshadow that we get of this idea of a rescuing Messiah, later revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth, first mentioned here all the way back in Genesis 3. And now in the story that we just read from John, 
thousands of years later, this is the exact story to which Jesus refers in his argument with the religious leaders and the short teaching that he does on Satan. Jesus calls the religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem seeds of the serpent, descendants of the stake. Meaning he's saying to them, listen, you claim to descend from Abraham, but the reality is that you stand in a long line of liars with the devil himself. Good grief. Now, when we talk about the devil and his lies, we're actually entering into a classic triad of philosophical or existential questions that have been posited by philosophers for centuries upon centuries. And those three questions are as follows. The first is, who is God? The second is, who are we? And then finally, how should we live? So in other words, that's questions about theology. Who is God? Questions about anthropology and identity. Who are we? And questions about morality or sociology. How should we live? And isn't it as incredible as it is chilling that in Genesis 3, when the snake slithers before Eve with lies, it's lies about all three questions. Who is God? Verse 5, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open, meaning God's a liar. He's holding out on you. You will certainly not die. He's petty. He's insecure. He's an arbitrary rule monger. Questions about who we are. The snake says, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be just like God, meaning your place isn't below God. Are you kidding me? Why should you have limits? You can ascend to the level of God himself, transcend your limitations, or in today's language, be true to yourself, follow your heart. You do you from those awful Diet Coke commercials that play before the movie. You guys seen those things? That woman walking around talking, I think she's some kind of uh, impromptu comedian or something. She's like, just, <laughs> it's essentially like, Diet Coke's disgusting, and no, everyone's going to make fun of you for it, but just drink it. Will you please just drink it? Just be yourself and drink the Diet Coke. That's what I get from it anyway. Sorry, that's a tangent. I didn't write that down. Um, <laughs> and the final question, how should we live, is warped in the story as well. In verse 6, it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for, good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Forget God's compassionate protection and wisdom, His commands, His desire to preserve you from death and still allow you to have freedom. Follow pleasure. Follow desire. Follow your, your desire for wisdom or good food, you know, experiences. Eat it. Forget the multitude of trees and fruit elsewhere in the garden that Eve just pointed out. We can eat from anything we want except this one tree just to have this one. You want this tree, so you should have it. Eat it, and then you'll be happy. And these are still the devil's go-to lies. Lies about who God is, lies about who you are, and lies about the way that we should live. The style and the context of these lies obviously vary from generation to generation. They vary from culture to culture. They even vary from one demographic to another. But they are the same basic shape down through the ages. Lies about who God is. Um, this week I saw a short clip um, of Bill Maher on the, uh, he was a guest on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and Bill, who's an outspoken atheist, was arguing with Stephen, who's a practicing Catholic, and in it, uh, Bill Maher described God as, I wrote down the quote, an intellectually embarrassing myth from the Bronze Age. Meaning today, the lie about who God is is that God is like a coping mechanism. He's for the weak. He's for the uneducated, people that don't know any better. He's an intellectually embarrassing myth. Or one I hear just as often is, 
Who can know what, who God even is? Who can know what God is even li- like? No one can. That's who. He or she or it or whatever it is will never know what, what they're like, and so why should we even try? Or really, let's make it up. Or really, who cares? And the problem is that these three existential questions are kind of ordered in a sequence, meaning who God is um, and then who are we and how we should li- live are ordered that way for a reason. How you answer questions one and two determine, or pardon me, how you es- answer question one determines how you answer questions two and three, meaning your theology determines your anthropology, which determines your moralism. Or in other words, how you believe life should be lived is based on what you believe to be true about humanity, which is based on your belief in God or a lack thereof. If there is a creator, then there's purpose in the universe, at least to some extent. If there's purpose, then there's a right and a wrong way to go about it, and there are consequences for both of those things. But if there's no creator, then there is no purpose. Life is entirely random and, according to some, ultimately meaningless in the grand sense, at least. And so, consequently, there are no objective morals. Follow your heart. No one can or should impose objective morality on another human being because there is none. Um, there's actually a, an animation studio I, I, I love called Kurzgesagt um, on YouTube. They, they produce these short, quirky videos called In a Nutshell, where they explain complicated scientific concepts like black holes and supercomputers with little animated videos. It's really helpful. Um, in 2017, they had amassed such a, a, a tremendous amount of feedback about the philosophical implications of their scientific beliefs that they were asked to produce a one-off video that explained their worldview. Um, and in it, they say this. Are you ready for a huge quote on the screen? It's fine. I'm going to read it to you. Calm down. Um, they, they say, we, we, meaning the producers of this video, this animation studio, counter existential dread with optimistic nihilism. It seems very unlikely that 200 trillion trillion stars have been made for us. In a way, it feels like the cruelest joke in existence has been played on us. We became self-aware only to realize this story is not about us. While it's great to know about electrons and the powerhouse of the cell, science doesn't do a lot to make this less depressing. Okay, but so what? You only get one shot at life, which is scary, but it also sets you free. If the universe ends in heat death, every humiliation you suffer in your life will be forgotten. Every mistake you made will not matter in the end. Every bad thing you did will be voided. If our life is all we get to experience, in the, it's the only thing that matters. If the universe has no principles, the only principles relevant are the ones we decide on. If the universe has no purpose, then we get to dictate what its purpose is. All three lies, alive and well. And to seduce us with his lies, Satan's strategy is to isolate us. Notice in the story from Genesis, Eve is without her husband in the dialogue of the conversation. In this case, that's her community, the only bit of community (laughs) that's going on. And in some sense, she's also away from God when the snake arrives to deceive her. Both the scriptures and spiritual formation writers and thinkers go on and on about the great importance of something called spirit and truth, meaning when we are present with God and with our community, and when we use those things to expose ourselves to the truth and to reinforce that truth through togetherness or presence, then we are formed more into the image of Jesus. But when we are cut off from others and isolated, 
And when we entertain lies with no sounding board other than our own psyche and the influence of the Satan, then we are led away from God and destroyed by those lies. So to, to end tonight, let's look at a retelling of the Genesis 3 story, but one that stars Jesus of Nazareth. Do me a favor and turn one more time in your Bibles all the way to the right to Luke chapter 4, back to the New Testament, Luke chapter 4. This is a story that we'll revisit later in this series, but tonight I just want to read it to you guys with you following along in your Bibles, and I want to close with a simple observation from the text. So go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 4. Sound of sweet, sweet analog pages, papery thin pages. And let's read Luke chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Cause and effect. The devil said to him, listen, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, pause. In context, this story, if you know, is preceded by the baptism narrative of Jesus in which the voice of God himself rends the heavens open and speaks audibly to the people around and says over Jesus, this is my what? Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, here comes Satan right after this, and the first thing he says is, if you are the Son of God. Verse 4, Jesus answered with Scripture, it is written, man will not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And notice in the text, Jesus doesn't refute that claim, but he does rebut. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for him. And then the devil uses the Bible against Jesus. Oh, you like the Bible so much? Try this one out. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Then will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, obviously there is a ton here, but notice this about Jesus' bout of spiritual warfare. Doesn't it read less like warfare and more like a confident exchange of ideas? Jesus is someone who is immersed in both the presence or the Spirit of God and in the truth of what the Scriptures teach. And in this little temptation narrative, it doesn't read like a hostile shouting match. It reads like a confidently unanxious un assertion of the truth. Satan shows up with his lies, the classic triad of lies, and Jesus counters with the truth, that simply. And in the story, he's been practicing silence and solitude, something we learned about a while back. He's been practicing scripture memorization. He's been fasting. He's been praying. Meaning, listen to this, Jesus is actually using the spiritual disciplines, or what we call the practices, to do battle with lies. And we can do the exact same thing. Now, are you ready for the inevitable Dallas Willard quote? I got a good one for you. Um, As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. 
the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively, progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. We've ordered our, our, our entire church around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus for a reason. Remember, we're transformed by teaching, which is ideas, truth, reality. We're transformed by practice, the spiritual disciplines. We're transformed by community and, of course, by the Spirit of God Himself. And all of that happens across the span of time throughout the ups and downs of the hard knocks of life. And thing is, it's really easy to think about God and the truth with some guy monologuing for a half hour during a church gathering. Maybe it's easier for some of you than others, um, depending on me. But when someone's sitting there talking to you about God, it's a lot easier to think about God. Um, it's a lot easier to think about God when you're sitting around a table with your community having conversations about God. But how much time is that in your week, really? You know, like four to six hours tops? If so, that leaves you with some 160 plus hours throughout your week. And I'm not saying the answer is go to church all week. Please don't. No one will be here. Um, I'm not saying that, or Cam will be. Go up there and knock on the door. Um, right? Yep. Uh, I'm not saying that you should just sit there all day reading your Bibles, never interact with anyone or go to work or anything like that. But what I'm getting at is that in order to prepare for and participate in the battle against lies, we must make every single effort to curate our thought life through practices, through the spiritual disciplines, through prayer, through contemplation, through community, through the things that you think. And just recently, um, I had, have, have had God nagging me about this thing for a long time now where I'll be talking to him and, and doing my thing in the morning. He'll be like, you still haven't worked on this other thing at all. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to. Give me a second. And, uh, and recently, I, I actually confided in God. I was like, you know what? I can't do it like this anymore. I think you're right. I need to learn to do this thing you've been asking me to do for a long time. And he said, great, it starts with the way you think. And I was so surprised, honestly. I thought that it was going to be like, you need to say this thing less. You need to do this thing less. And he was like, no, you privately sit there and think these negative things. And that's what compels your behavior. That's what compels the things that you say and do. I don't want you to even think like that anymore. And I realized, oh my gosh, what a compliment. This is harder than I thought. The idea that in the scriptures of taking every thought captive. Here comes this old negative thought, and I have to stop and say, oh, that's, that's not true. And in that, God's Spirit has been telling me, like, the thought will come up, and I want to entertain it. I want it to be like, oh, that, it feels like a warm bath that you slip into to think these negative, destructive things. And God, it feels like, is lovingly grabbing me by the arm and said, no, no, we said no more. You're not going to think like that anymore. And it takes a tremendous amount of hard work, not willpower. Willpower only gets you so far. My therapist likes to say, <laughs> willpower works until it doesn't. Uh, meaning you, you can only will yourself to do so much. It comes with curating a thought life, uh, exchanging old thoughts for new ones by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in community with the practices over and over again throughout time. You are, in the language of Willard, renovating the heart, so to speak. Um, and, and you are being bombarded by lies at a breakneck speed just about any time you put a toe in the cultural waters. And I, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. And to apprentice Jesus, 
you must participate in the culture. <laughs> so it's this frustrating thing you cannot hide from it. I mean, you could, but then you make, you repeat classic mistakes of the church where the idea is to hide away from culture. It's also evil. We'll just wait it out over here until God zaps us out of this place. And then you realize, oh, Jesus actually asked us to participate in the culture and in a profound way. So you will face lies all the time. You'll get them from a news feed. You'll get them from social media, almost nothing but lies from social media. You'll get them from friends and family, people close to you. You'll get them from the broken parts of your own mind, like I was just saying. You'll get them from entertainment. You'll get them from a conversation that you overhear standing on the sidewalk in an afternoon. Um, I read this week that statistically the average American spends uh, four to five hours a day watching television, um, which, you know, that seems weird. Uh, and then I read in that same study that the average millennial is on their phone five hours a day. Now, good Lord, I hope that stat doesn't represent many of us, but even so, the math either way seems to suggest that most of us sit before a fire hose of lies for hours every single week. And hopefully you guys know me enough to know I'm not some kind of conservative fundamentalist. I have a very high value for participating in culture, very high value for art, and even for entertainment, things like that. Um, no high value for social media or smartphones. Those belong to the devil. You can disagree with me on that if you want. My point is that such an extravagant exposure to lies every single day means that we must take responsibility for the toll that is being taken on our minds. We cannot sit back and presume that it's having no effect on us. It is all the time, regardless of how resolved you think you are in your thinking and your dispositions. So the way that we do that is that we turn our attention to God. And in a variety of ways, over and over and over again, that comes by reading the scriptures through prayer. We think about him. Really that simple. Think about, I do this thing every day at two o'clock, an alarm goes off. It's called, it's called the daily office where you stop to um, pray. That's about as simple as it is. And for me, that looks like just stopping and thinking about God for a couple of minutes, just remembering, oh, right, there is a God. He's at the center of the universe, not me. He knows who I am. He's here right now. <sighs> okay, rest of my day and right back to that. We turn our attention to God over and over and over again. And by doing that, we connect with His Spirit. Remember, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have God's indwelling Spirit in your person, so you have closeness available to you. You do that in community, never by yourself, meaning that, yes, obviously you go and do things by yourself, and that's all well and good, but in your life, you exist in a web of relationships with community, with other apprentices of Jesus, and they enable us to see lies for what they are. They turn our attention to our blind spots. I mean, the thing that I was telling you guys just a, a bit ago in vulnerability about this thing that I've been doing, it's so easy for me to sit over here in a corner and privately think bad things about myself and about the world. If I ever say them out loud, someone who's in a relationship with me will say, that's not that's not true. Why would you say that? That's, that's the idea with isolation. It's so much easier to entertain lies. But in community, it's almost impossible <laughs> if you're articulating them on a regular basis. Last week, um, our community was working through the practice of fighting lies with the truth. Some of you guys started that already. And I was so taken by how beautiful it was. On paper, it was like, okay, this is going to be a little weird, but let's just give it a shot. Um, and so we sat there, we listened, and one person in vulnerability, after listening to God's Spirit, admitted, like, what did you see? What did you get? And they had this really profound picture that to them revealed that they sometimes believe God is too busy for them. He's unavailable to them. And another person that knows this person in community just calmly said, you know what comes to mind for me? Psalm 139. And another person got out the scriptures and we read it over this person. Another person said, man, I, I'm worried that I'm going to find out something bad 
about God. And then another person spoke up and said, you know, it says in James that God does not change like shifting shadows. And it was that simple. It was simple, elegant, and beautiful. It wasn't like a huge sob fest. It was like, you know what? You're right. Oh, that's right. I need to be reminded of that. In community, it was so simple to say like, oh, actually those things aren't true. Here's what's true. And it was that basic. And listen, Jesus will help you do this, absolutely. In fact, the whole reason that we start with listening is because we think God's Spirit wants to pour out truth over this, but He will not do it for you exclusively. He will not exercise unilateral control to turn your brain around and make it the way it should be because God has given you a say. He's given you autonomy. He's given you freedom. So He will not force you to think His thoughts. And that means that you and I have to participate in changing the way that we think. And we do that by showing up again and again and again in community with the Spirit, again and again, practicing the way of Jesus. The idea is not to try. Remember, willpower works until it doesn't. So you don't try, you train in the ways of Jesus, meaning even when there's no emotional resonance, when you feel like you don't want to stop at 2 o'clock and go, right, yeah, there's a God, there's a God. You just, you continue to train yourself to do that so that the same way that you exercise, the same way that you learn how to play an instrument, your mind is being changed to someone who can do it with participation, collaboration, and empowerment from God's Spirit. Um, finally, in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, there's this haunting line in which upon giving them instructions for the best way to live, Paul writes this. The whole reason he's getting at this is so that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, I realize that for a great many of us, we are actually unaware of Satan's schemes. Maybe not in the broad sense, but in the specificity of our lives, the li lives, the lies that we overlook, we have become unaware of his schemes. So that's what this entire practice is all about, becoming aware of the devil's schemes that, in Paul's language, he might not outwit us. So if you guys are up for it, will you just stand with me so we can pray, invite God's Spirit to come before we take the cup together? Thanks for listening to Van City Church. There are more teachings and available resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.